0: Hello, all you Reinventors. This is Leslie Jane Seymour. And oh my goodness, sometimes you just have such a great interview with somebody. And it, it makes you a little sad that we didn't know each other when we were all going through this crazy, mean fashion world at the same time. She, she was over at uh, Rolling Stone Magazine and Vibe, and I was in the Fashion World magazine. And it was so hard to find nice people who really um, were kind and thoughtful. And as she says, she went through her, you know, her mean girl stint and then realized that she had to come back to herself. And so I'm really excited to bring you Bevy Smith, who has a new book out, which you need to read, which is called Bevelations, Lessons from a Mother, Auntie and Bestie. And what's so wonderful about her, if you want to know how you can be the best you are at any age. Wait till you listen to what she did. She started out, of course, um, getting herself going in the fashion world. And um, she ended up at Vibe Magazine, really bringing in all the big fashion accounts and breaking all the rules. Because at that point, as she says, Um, the fashion world did not believe that Black people bought or wore fashion. I mean, it seems so completely nuts now when you think back about, I mean, it's almost like fashion at that point was created by Black music and everything. Anyway, so she left. um, She was there having a crazy, wacky life traveling the world and traveling first class and breaking all the the biggest names in fashion and hanging with them and living the life of Miranda Priestly, as she says, um, and doing her best imitation. (laughs) And then she realized that, um, she had to, well, she had to go over to Rolling Stone in order to get uh, a leg up that the vibe people had just come to take her for granted, which happens with any job when you're killing it, they don't want you to move. You're doing such a good job. Um, she went over to Rolling Stone and found it was like, ah, like a totally different place. And she had to start all over. She got her little pot of money because she was making more money there and decided she wanted to reinvent herself and change herself completely. And so that's what our discussion is all about is how she went back to finding herself, finding out who she really is. And she has one of those crazy curious completely never stop learning minds that we always talk about at Covey club it's a particular thing and if you are like that um, you will see her say if you're just sitting there making a lot of money you you may not be living the life that you could have and what's really important is that you get to that life you really need to have and she will walk you through that and how you do that and as as she's talking about, um, she got her first TV show at 45, her second at 50, her first book at 53, published at 54. And now her at 54, her new passion is acting. So you're actually going to get to see her, um, in roles on TV. Anyway, um, I want her to tell you all about it herself. So here she is. So hello, Bevy. I'm so glad to have you here. This is so nice.
1: I'm so happy to be here, Leslie. You know, I'm obsessed with the pivot. So, yes, it's great to be in a community of pivoters and soon to be folks who are, are pivoting. So, yes, and
0: everybody's going to have to pivot after the pandemic. That is just, you're going to be forced into it, whether you like it or not, somehow. Hopefully, we can help people make it as easy as possible. So, I want to talk a little bit about your childhood being a shy, nerdy girl who got bullied. I always like to find out how, how people became who they are so that people can identify those same kind of things in themselves. Can you talk just briefly about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I grew up in Harlem and contrary to popular belief, growing up in Harlem was not uh, a scary um, and uh, a hardship for me. Um, it was home. Um, I, I'm the youngest of three children. Um, I have an older brother and an older sister And I was very cared and nurtured, um, and, and spoiled, honestly. Um, and when, um, I went to junior high school, it's when things really started changing for me. Um, you know, I believe that, you know, when you're in grade school, elementary school, everyone is your friend. And then the lines begin to get drawn in junior high school. And I guess it's because it's the beginning of puberty and everything. And the hormones are raging and. So when I got to junior high school, all of a sudden I went from having um, lots of friends and being an open, you know, very accessible and very um, outward facing girl to um, being in a school where there were a bunch of mean girls and I had to kind of navigate the waters of that. And my sister and I stuck out like sore thumbs because we had parents that were much older than everyone else's parents. My mom was 38 when I was born. My dad was 41. Of course now, Leslie, that's a very normal age to have children, but I was born in 1966. So yeah, they still call 38 years old a geriatric pregnancy. But when my mom had me, they were literally like, this is a geriatric pregnancy. You could die being this old. You know what I mean? So it's a very different space. And so um, all of that kind of informs my childhood, right? Having older parents, and um, being very uh, shy and, and and bookish and things like that. And then I realized that to be a cool girl in my school, took you had to dress well. My dad made um, good enough money so that we he was able to buy us nice clothes. And then you had to know how to dance. That my brother is a great dancer, so he taught us all the newest dance moves. Um, you had to be sm- smart because you had to have a quick wit, and if you've ever seen me on TV, you know I've got that. Um, and then you had to be cute. You couldn't, you know, you had to be a cute girl. And you know, I got my little cute little chocolatey brown face, so I was I was good to go on all those cylinders. So I decided to become a cool girl, and um, that was where I lost myself. I lost the core of who I am, little brown bevy. And that's when my life began to change. Um, and that was, I was 12 years old.
0: And that's so interesting. And is and so you rejected being a cool girl? And, no, Cause I, fashion is all about being a cool girl, isn't it? No, no, I, I mean,
1: into being a cool girl. I learned how to be a cool girl. I was the nerdy girl. And then I learned to be a cool girl. That's when my life changed. It's when I stopped trying to, um, I stopped being who I was at my core which is Little Brown Bevy, which is very kind of uh, quiet and sweet and smart and um, adventurous and curious. And I became kind of a cool girl. So I was like too cool for school kind of attitude versus, you know, being like a bubbly, um, you know, happy, euphoric kid. I became a little more like Oh, that's nice. Oh, that's cool. Whatever. That kind of attitude, which is so not- So was,
0: was that a good thing for you or a bad thing for you?
1: Well, I don't think it's a good or a bad thing. It was just a different space for me because honestly, um, you know, by cultivating that cool girl effect, as you said, fashion is nothing but a bunch of cool girls. So by the time I got into the fashion business, I knew how to Take on these affectations and and um and you know spin gold out of them you know so it was a good it was a good training ground for what I would have to do later in life, um but it was bad for me from a, a spiritual point of view because I put away the core of who I was which is who I describe in the book as Little Brown Baby and I believe that she's the best part of me.
0: So interesting. I would just love to know, since you brought it up before we get into your move to fashion advertising, do you think that's what goes on? I never understood this fashion crowd. I really, you know, I always was, because I was a journalist, I was always sort of able to hang on the side of it. But I always wondered, was it cultivated? And were people happy? Because I saw so many people who were unhappy Yeah, and you know, was it just a way to survive? And were people aware of that, or were they were they? I mean, some people, as you know, were seriously into it and didn't know who they were at the core. But love to hear your mom your thought on that.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I talk about in the book that I I realized that um, when I was like doing my best Miranda Priestly um, impersonation. You know, being a raging fashionista, bitch, um, I realized I, I looked at myself and I was like, but are you happy with yourself and are people happy to be around you? And while the answer was, um, complicated, I have to say for the most part, it was no, I was not happy with myself. And, and for the most part, a lot of people weren't happy being around me because I was a misery. And so I was a miserable person to other people. And, um, I think that that goes on a lot in fashion when you look around, um, especially now that we're seeing so many people being, um, displaced, um, so many people losing their, their lofty, um, you know, positions and things. And, um, so many folks that were once ruled the roost, um, have been brought low and now they're having to, uh, face. Um, the damage that they did in their lives and that has spilled over into their personal lives You know, it was they did a lot of mean heinous things in their professional lives And then of course that spilled over into their personal life because now they can't pick up the phone and have people Be willing to help them in in a myriad of ways um, I will say this about myself as much as I felt like I was like a miserable bitchy person I must have still retained Lulu Brown Bevy in certain spaces, because the amount of love and support that I've always received, especially when I quit my job at Rolling Stone magazine as the senior director of fashion advertising, the amount of love support that I've received, um, lets me know that, um, as much as I had a facade going, um, I was also able to let people of uh, certain people get to the core of me and connect with me. So I did retain a lot of really good connections in fashion. But for the most part, Leslie, you're right. It's a mean girl clique. People are hiding. It's a full on masquerade. And most people are just afraid that you're gonna pull back the curtain and find out that the um, Wizard of Oz is just a little man with a smoke machine.
0: It's interesting, because one time Michael Kors told me, he said, fashion is just, high school, which table you're going to sit at all over again. And I thought that was like the best, the best example of what it is. I mean, all that anxiety and all that, are you going to be accepted or rejected? It's all about accept. And then I also, also thought it was um, a lot of revenge of the nerds.
1: Of course it was. Oh my God. (laughs) I talk about that all the time. Revenge of the nerds. And oh my gosh, Leslie! Can, okay, now we're about the dish, girl.
0: Okay, Before good. <laughs> and keep it. Keep thinking about your reinvention. Give some reinvention okay. tips.
1: Really quick, really quick. It's always so insane to me that you meet these people in fashion. Everyone's darling and has all these affected tunes, and everyone's fabulous, and everyone's got such an amazing, you know, um, innate sense of style, and everyone's, you know, just. The height of good taste and everything. And then you meet people's parents and they are like the nicest, most down home, most humble people you ever want to meet. And it's like, so everyone was carrying on like they were man or born and you're from like some nice town in the Midwest where you were picked on and called the weirdo and now you come to the big city, you reinvent yourself, but then the worst part about it is, is that you're mean to other people who are just like you were. And that's the part that's not cool. And I will say this, when I reinvented myself for the first time, when I went to um, high school and I became a fide cool girl, I always had a soft spot and I was always very kind to the people that fit into the spaces of other, you know? I never, because I always remembered oh yeah, girl, you can put on this facade that you're like this cool girl, but you know, really down deep inside, you're a nerdy kid. So you have to be nice to the others because you're really an other.
0: So so talk a little bit about, so you got into fashion advertising and you were traveling the world going crazy, like all of us. Yeah. And talk about your shift in direction to come out from, from behind, I guess, in behind the camera to in front of the camera, right? There is one transition like that.
1: Yeah, Um, well, you know, when um, I started my career as a fashion advertising executive, um, and well, I started my career as a a receptionist at a fashion advertising agency. And then from there, um, I worked for a really amazing guy named Jeff McKay who gave me great opportunities um, and so, um, it was there at his agency where we worked on accounts like bill Blass, where I actually worked with Mr. Blast, um, uh, Shiseido cosmetics, you know, different, you know, luxury brands. Uh, it was there that I started really creating, um, my career, like, and I became a fashion, um, executive because I was a media director. And so that was great. And then I quit my job around the age of 28, 29, I was dissatisfied and I didn't know what I wanted to do. Leslie, I just knew I didn't want to do that anymore. And so I kind of like drifted around to try to figure out, I was like, maybe I want to do PR, um, maybe I want to do events. Um, maybe cause I knew I had this outgoing personality. So I knew that, and I knew I was really good with communication. So I was like, I, I think it's something like that. And I knew I also loved the fabulous event. So I was like, maybe it's something like that. So I drifted around. And then I got a call from friends that worked at vibe magazine and they said that they needed someone who really knew, um, luxury fashion because it was a job open for someone to do, um, to try and secure high-end fashion brands into vibe magazine. Now vibe, um, is a hip hop magazine. Well, what used to be called urban music, which is essentially what is now called black music. Um, so that's, um, everything that's R and B and hip hop and things like that, which of course now is pop culture anyway. Um, these are, um, you know, a magazine like vibe didn't have uh, luxury advertising in it because, um, systemic racism, I'll just say it what it is. It's systemic racism that assumed that black and brown people would not be interested in, um, fabulous clothes. And if they were interested. They certainly could never afford to buy any of it. Right. Okay. So I get there and it's my job to break really the fashion, um, out of Europe. So I go to Paris and Milan six times a year. Um, I go to the shows and I go for sales calls and I fly private. I mean, I fly first class private king later. I I fly first class. I stay at the best hotels. I have a huge expense account. And I get all of these fabulous gifts from all of these different fashion brands. And I'm doing it. And I break Gucci and Prada and Dior and Armani and Dolce and Gabbana, I do all these things. And I'm doing this for a community and a culture that has been marginalized. And I go in with um, an idea that I actually cribbed from, from the late, great Bill Cunningham. I start doing my own street style photos, the way he used to do in the New York Times. Before it was ever called street style, um, and I would go to um, big events that vibe with hosts, and I would take pictures. And this is before disposable cam—I mean, this is before um, digital cameras, and it's also before camera phones, because it's the late '90s, early 2000s. So I would go with a disposable camera, take these pictures of people dressed up in head-to-toe designer garments. I would have them processed, and then I would create a lookbook. And I would take that with me to Milan and to Paris. And then I would also take over the great Harlem Renaissance, um, photographer, James Van Der Zee. I would take his books over and I would take over Jacob Lawrence books. And I would just like kind of educate them as to why this was a viable audience and Puffy and Lulu Kim and Mary J. Blige weren't the only people in the space that had taste or knew how to dress or wanted to wear fabulous clothes. It was a cultural thing. And, um, that was like the, the beginning of, um, a great time in my career. Uh, but then all of a sudden Leslie, I just started getting restless because I'm a person who doesn't rest on her laurels. So I like a challenge. And so once I broke all these accounts, I was just like, I need something else to do. And I tried to get the people over at vibe. My bosses over at vibe to give me something different to do. And they were like, no, you're really good at this. You make us so much money because at one point i was like responsible i think for maybe bringing in like 10 million dollars a year in advertising they were like you're really good at this why would you ever want to leave and i was just like but i don't want to do this anymore i think there's something else i want to do so i tried to get them to give me something else and they wouldn't and then i got a call from rolling stone magazine and i said oh that's interesting i don't want to go to a place like rolling stone magazine But I thought maybe I could use their offer as leverage. So I can say to the Vibe magazine folks, look, Rolling Stone wants me. They're the number one music magazine in the world. You guys want to play your cards, right? So when I went back to Vibe with that offer, uh, shockingly, they said, well, Bevy, thank you so much for all that you've done for Vibe. We wish you the best over at Rolling Stone. (laughs) Can you imagine?
0: It's incredible, though. It's a it's so classic publishing, Debbie. I like relate to everything you're saying. I mean, I had very similar issues knocking on doors saying I want to be more than a fashion writer and people saying you can't be more than a fashion writer because that's what you do. And you're (laughs) so good at it. Yeah. And then, and they would, and then you, they would prevent you from growing. And yeah. then eventually you would have to leave because that was just, it's funny. It's the same personality of wanting to, you know, try new things. I'm I'm exactly there with you. And they, and now, I mean, oh my God, just thinking back of all that stuff. Do you just like, it's sad. All of that is gone. All that crazy stuff. Yeah. It's all gone. So Nope. Anyway, keep going. Great story. I totally relate.
1: Uh, so I get to Rolling Stone and it's a total and complete culture shock. Now you have to know that when I started in fashion advertising, um, I did not have any black people around me at the first job where I had where I was a receptionist, there was one other black woman there, and she was the executive assistant to the only of the owner of the agency. When I go to Jeff McKay, I'm the only black person. And then I hire a black person to be my assistant. Um, but then when I get the vibe, I'm in this beautiful space, you know, like in black Panther Wakanda, if that had been around back then, that reference had been alive, it would have been like Wakanda forever at Vibe magazine. It's such an incredible feeling. Like, and I know that you probably had this feeling at more when you're around your tribe, right? Your literal tribe, right? Yes. In a space where you do not have to explain yourself, where you don't have to hide any parts of yourself, where you get to show up fully as you are and know that you will not only be um, uh, accepted um, or tolerated, but you will be celebrated. It's the best feeling in the world, right?
0: Totally, I totally know what you're talking about. Cause I always felt I had to be somebody else. I had to be me, but. Midwest. I had to be me, but a fashionista. I had to be me, but younger. I, you know, and more, I didn't, I totally get what you're saying.
1: Yeah. So then you get the vibe and it's like, oh my gosh, I'm home, which is why I was so hesitant to ever leave, but I leave and I go to Rolling Stone and guess what? I go back, I go to Rolling Stone and again, I go right back to the only one. So at Rolling Stone, um, and this is in 2005, Leslie, which is a disgrace that in 2005, I was the only woman on the sales team and I was the only black person that had anything other than a security or a mailroom position at Rolling Stone magazine. They have one editor, um, there as well, but that was it. They didn't even have black people as secretaries reception, like nothing. Like it's insane. And so I get there and of course I'm, you know, one of these things is not like the other. But I know I'm going in there with a very specific goal. I left five and went to Rolling Stone with the understanding that I was not going to do this for much longer. I was going to take the increase in salary that I was going to receive from working at Rolling Stone. And I was going to use that money as my seed money to launch my new life, which was going to be a life filled with creativity and, um, freedom to explore whatever it is that I set my sights on. So I go there understanding that I'm not there for a long time at all. But when I get there, it's even worse than I could have ever imagined. As I talk about in the book, the fact that, you know, at, in 2005, Beyonce was a huge star, you know, outcast. They were all these really big, um, black artists that were making chart, topping music. They were ch- like, literally topping the pop music charts. They had one. Black person on the cover of Rolling Stone and Rolling Stone had 26 issues a year. One Black person that was Jay-Z and yet they had the Rolling Stones and several of the Beatles on the cover in 2005. So they would rather put a, um, you know, a dead rock and roll legend, or they would rather put an old legend on the cover than put what is new and popular music and i have to say that i do believe that that's a big reason why um Rolling Stone has um it's in a much diminished state because they didn't keep up with the times
0: they didn't so move yeah that's a do- common feature with publishing people i don't know why that is but they tend to be a very slow moving bunch that's why they got hammered by by the digital they couldn't right. they couldn't get themselves together for digital either i don't I don't know what that is, but it tends for people who are supposed to be spotting trends and be on the cutting edge and all that. They are the slowest moving bunch of snails I've ever met.
1: Amen. And I think it's out of fear. You know what I mean? They're 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 very a complacent bunch, and everyone is um, is uh, fighting. They are all jockeying for this position, right? So no one wants to quit a deal, um, lose their space. Um, you know, everyone is fearful. That's the reason why they treat interns so bad, assistants so horribly, because they, they fear new now next.
0: Mm, that's um, interesting. Yeah, I just, I think that's just, there's two ways to manage people. Fear is a good one. Yeah, And you, you can either do it by fear or by encouragement. And they, the magazine business chose fear for whatever reason, and it, yes, it worked, right?
1: Yes. Well, for as long as it, it did work. And now, Ding dong, the witch is dead, baby. That, <laughs> yeah.
0: that day is over. <laughs> uh, so, were you were you living the life there? I never thought of Rolling Stone as as spending money like that. I always kind of thought maybe it was because I was thinking of them later on, but yeah. I always thought that they they had pulled in the reins on their spending really early. No,
1: oh, yeah, no, no, no. They didn't have you didn't have a big expense account at. at ah, Stone. That's what I thought. Right. Okay, they paid you well, and the reason why they paid well was because it was, as you know, Leslie, from being in the business, there were lots of cockamamie rules and, um, it was not the best work environment. So they had to find ways to secure good talent. And the one way to do it is hire people and pay them very well. And, um, you know, I'll never forget when I got there and then they told me, I, you know, I'm working in the music magazine. And so, Traditionally, music magazines have music going all all around everybody's office. Everyone's playing something. And I, um, when I was getting set up at my desk and everything, I said, oh, well, you know, I need a stereo. And they were like, okay, we'll bring you the brochure. And I picked that one and everything. And they said, okay, we'll have it delivered next day. I receive it, but I also receive a bill. And I said, what's this? They're like, oh, you wanted the stereo. I was like, yes, I did. They're like, well, that's the bill. I was like, what? No, but sweetie, it's, I'm not taking this home it's for the the office. And they were like, oh yeah, no, we don't do that. And I went to the associate publisher and I said, why am I buying this? Like, what, what is this? He's like, Bevy, we're paying you $350,000 a year. You mean to tell me you can't buy your own stereo? And I was like, but that's not the point. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, <laughs> that's not the point, sweetie. It's like i'm working in a music magazine i should know what's going on in the music space therefore i should be able to hear music when i'm
0: anyway did they cave
1: no they didn't cave but it was literally a 25 dollar <laughs> stereo but that just let me know that was just yeah. another indicator um leslie that i would not be there for long okay you so couldn't keep plants on your desk for longer than three days um you also if you put up pictures they had to be either in a frame or if you put them on the cork board, they had to be pinned at each corner. So it
0: couldn't- Rolling Stone, was that overly and, controlling?
1: Ma'am, when I tell you y'all went ahead, the rules upon rules.
0: What a uh, weird thing.
1: Yes, and the, wait, the, the best one was, um, if you left your laptop out um, on the desk overnight, it was an infraction. And one time what? I forgot. And when I came into the office, There was a note saying I had to go to HR. I went to HR. They said you left your laptop out, and I was like, "Well, what? Okay, so I did. So now, what are we going to do about it?"
0: This is that's like the old days. Do you remember the old days of Calvin Klein? i God, I to want to tell you about Calvin Klein. Yes, with you had to put everything away and no personal photos. So and they would go around and check the desks, and you could they check the desk at, at Rolling Stone.
1: Like what? someone sent me an orchid when I got that job and it was on the desk for like five days. And when I came in, it was gone. And I said, what happened to my orchid? They said, that's an infraction. You know, flowers can only be around for three days. I said, but like,
0: Okay. That's the, this is the first revelation about, I'm like, that is so contrary to the outside. That is so hilarious. Oh, no, it had and- nothing
1: to do with rock and roll. It had nothing to do with like Sex, drugs, and rock and roll—that San Francisco counterculture lifestyle had left a long time ago. That's why I say in the huh. book, okay. I talk about the fact that you know it's like you know um, it, it was born out of the nineteen sixties, you know, counterculture, right? Human rights movement, all this kind of stuff. But evidently, that did not that did not trickle down to their their viewpoints on a diverse um, uh, uh, staff. So it's interesting, really, yeah.
0: So a- how long were you there? And and then
1: I got my, I got my salary. I mean, I got my uh, bonus because you know, okay. you're person, you hit your numbers, you right? Get a bonus. I got my bonus um, at the end of the year and I'll never, re- never forget. I waited until the check cleared because was- uh-huh, yeah. a lot
0: of people do. Yep. That's
1: right, baby. Yeah, I wait till the check clears. And then um, I marched into my boss's office, who I absolutely love. And I told him I was resigning. He could not believe it. He said, what are you resigning for? I said, to write, to sing, to dance, to act, to juggle, to be a fire eater, to be a, uh, a helicopter, uh, you know, pilot to do whatever it is that I see fit to do in my life. And he's like, you're having a midlife crisis. And I said, I don't think so. And he's like, but you are. And he took me to the 21 club and he explained to me that I was on a fast track to become um a big publisher and I said I think I am too but I don't want that so I'm gonna get off here thanks and I and I decided at that moment well I didn't decide that moment but that's the moment when I started my new life and from there Leslie I took a the sepia version of eat pray love I went to I like that yeah I went to South Africa Zambia Brazil in Costa Rica. I was gone for about three months off and on. I like came back home to like just see my parents and repack a bag and everything. And I just traveled. And then I, I went um, and took acting classes and writing classes. And and I just took photography classes and DJ classes, all the things that I've ever been interested in. I was like, I'm gonna try my hand at that. I bet there's a class for that. And I just went ahead and did those kind of things. And I have to tell you, It was so fulfilling just to be doing, um, just to be pursuing my passions. I didn't know if I was going to be able to make anything out of them per se, but I just wanted to just try my hand at all these things I'd always been interested in. And I think that that's a big important part of when you're pivoting, you have to be, um, an explorer. You have to be adventurous and you have to be curious because we don't know where the gift is going to come from. You know? So I took improv classes Leslie and guess what me being, um, me doing improv actually helped me when I had to start doing TV. Cause I did all of those shows where it was like the fabulous life of, or, you know, 50 ways to upgrade your lifestyle and you have to be quick. And because I had taken improv when I, I was being interviewed, they would like throw out a name and I would be able to go off on a wonderfully funny, but yet, uh, you know, Kind of um, a really on point tangent, and and so that was one of my really great examples of. I took a class that I was because I was just interested in improv, and then of course it became a skill set that I needed for my next career.
0: So talk about then moving to the next stage because we're almost, we're pulling into the end here because we keep these fairly short only because our, it used to be that they said my listeners would say, don't go on too long because my commute is over. Now that they don't have a commute, (laughs) I don't know what that means, but uh, we try to be as succinct as we can, so um talk about because it's really about and and any tips you have bevy as you go through the the reinvention part just talk about because people are listening to say okay i've learned now what i got to do and this is what i did actually too is if you know you're coming to the end of something sock away a bunch of money for your reinvention whatever that is going to be if you have that opportunity that's helpful
1: Yeah. Okay. So, um, you know, I, I I went through so many twists and turns when I'm reinventing my life. I will tell you this. I quit my job. I had some money saved, but I didn't have enough money saved. And so in my book, there's a chapter called broke, but blissful. And I talk about, um, being so broke that I have to take a can of salmon and stretch it for three meals. I talk about having to go to housing court, but what I will tell you is this the entire time I was low on funds, I was very high on energy and because I was actually pursuing all the things that I set out to do and I was finding success. So I will say that, yes, of course, money is always very important, but you cannot let your finances fuel, um, your destiny in that way, because you know what? It's much easier for all of us to stay at high paying jobs that we just don't like. If we're gonna, you know, what I mean, so you gotta find that balance. I'm not saying that everyone needs to go out and quit their job the way I did, um, because I think that I have a very high tolerance risk. Um, but I would definitely say if you're miserable in your current situation, you've gotta find a way out, and even if that just means that you know you have your little business on the side of your big fancy job, that's fine, but you cannot just have, uh, you know, a life where you just go to work, you make a ton of money. And that's that, that's no way to live. Um, and I will say this as well. In my book, there's a one mantra that I live by. This is my number one revelation. It gets greater later. When I tell you, I got my first TV show at 45, I got my second TV show at 50. Um, I wrote my book at 53 published at 54 and now, um, at the age of 54, I have embarked upon a new passion project and and that is acting. And I just got my first acting role on a new TV show that will be coming out this fall. And they called me in for one episode, one, one scene. Then they called me back for a second scene. And now they've just called me back for another episode. I'm 54 years old. So when I tell you, it gets greater later. I mean that from the bottom of my heart, from the core of my spirit. So please do not feel like it's too late for you to pursue anything. Uh, Something else I did um, at the age of 53 was um, in my book, I talk about wanting to be an art and architecture curator. um, And I had the opportunity to actually select the art for a film that is starring an an Academy Award winner. Um, And so that film will be out, I believe, in the fall of 2021 as well. And when you're watching the film, you're gonna see all this beautiful art on the walls of this beautiful home. And you will know that your friend, Bebby Smith was the art consultant on that film. And I was 53 years old. So you can't tell me that you're too old to do anything.
0: As long as you have- I'm with you on that, totally.
1: As long as you have breath in your body, it's never too late. And I'll tell you this, I was one of the last people to interview Cicely Tyson. And she told me, that it's only too late if you believe it's too late, and she was 96 when she died, and um, she got her Tony Award at the age of 89. She got an honorary Oscar at 94. It gets greater later, y'all. That's my number one revelation. And if you can take anything away from what we just talked about, please know it gets greater later.
0: You are awesome. I am so happy we had this chance to talk and everybody has to go buy that book, Bevelations, Lessons from, am I saying this right? A Mother, Uh Auntie Bestie. Yes. By Bevy Smith. You're just so amazing. I can't believe we didn't know each other during our crazy moments in the fashion world. I'm so sorry. So many people who I now get to meet and uh, didn't have the opportunity to know when I was going, we are all going through these parallel lives, you know, and um, so wonderful to meet you and so wonderful to take your time. And we have a lot of great readers at the Covey club and I'm going to get everybody to pick up your book. Cause it's wonderful.
1: Thank you, my love. I appreciate it. And thank you for having me.
0: Great. Bev, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. So thank you everybody for joining us with this great discussion about reinvention. And I hope you enjoyed our talk with Bevy Smith. Wow, she's so impressive. And that spirit of constant reinvention is something we all aim for. And I hope that uh, if you like that, you will subscribe and come back and listen to all our fabulous interviews of all these amazing women and some men about how they've reinvented themselves. And also, if you are at that stage where you are trying to find out what's next for you and how you're going to actually attack that idea, come over to CoveyClub.com. We have got learning for you. We have got events for you. We have got all kinds of help and instruction. And it's a joyful crowd of women who wanna help each other and we are all in it for each other. And it definitely happens that way. So come join us. And I hope that you will see us again here at Reinvent Yourself.